Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. Am I coming through all right? It seems to be okay, yeah. Nick will criticise it, whatever. (laughs) Because Nick is rather like our loving God. He's angry and judgmental. (laughs) Oh, it's so good to know. (laughs) I say it is, yeah. Shall we just judgmental (laughs) in his unconditional love? Exactly. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to episode fifty four. Oh, you did that whole Australian thing. Welcome to episode fifty four. Oh, look, mate. It's a question. Uh, episode yeah. 54. Um, <laughs> welcome to episode 54. 54 of the Mid-Faith Crisis. Here am I, Nick Page, with my good friend Joe Davis. Hello. How are you doing? Very well indeed, thank you. It's marvellous to be here. Well, it's marvellous to have you. Thank you. It was marvellous to go and see First Man last night as well. That's worth a watch. Oh, um, very good film. Neil Armstrong, okay. First Man on the Moon. His whole story, incredible. Right. Did not know about that. And very in keeping with the theme of this show, I might add. Lots about grief and loss and all sorts of things. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's very good. I remember watching the men landing on the moon at school. Did you? We all sat. Yes, we all taken well, into a room. We all sat there and they old. put the television on, and it was it was a very special moment. So we all watched it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Did it actually happen? No, clearly it was uh, fake, yeah. and uh, they just spent millions. They spent much more, actually, than it would cost to send a man to the moon in faking it Good. and keeping up the fake ever well, since. That's what I thought. <laughs> Shall we now, move? <laughs> yes, go on. Let's get the notices in. We oh, well, there we have. We do have quite a few church notices. Yeah, go on. It's not too late to book for Alexander Shire on November the 10th. But do book quickly, because don't forget, on the day, it will cost you £3,750, but only £25 if you book in advance. The details are on our Facebook page and hopefully our website, but who knows, because Nick's in Marvelous. charge of that. It is on the website. I did it on the website. You could do it on the website if you actually la, la, bothered la, la, la. to you know learn I can hear? All I can hear is... <laughs> so, uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> right, but this is an exciting notice um no this is really exciting so friday the 7th and saturday the 8th of june next year um we have been promising people this little bird watching trip to minsmere the premier rspb reserve in the country where we'll see all kinds of wonderful things anyway it's all taking shape the places are booked all we need now and we've already had registered quite a bit of interest i've booked 10 rooms i don't think there's any more available in quite an exclusive little a place called the Wesselton Crown. That if, so here's the here's the nuts and bolts of this. It costs two hundred and twenty five pounds for a single room, single occupancy, uh, mm. and for that you get this lavish three course meal and a, a the breakfast of kings and queens, quite frankly, mm, and a, and a bed for the night. It is beautiful, um, and you get. Yeah, so that's what's there. Or if you are a couple or, you know, two people that, are, let's say, are happy to share a bed together. Um, <laughs> then, I am available. Then I'm, I'm here. No, that's £285. Okay. So, you know, make friends with someone, I would say, because that's going to work out better value. Um, mm. But that is the... That is the mm. place we've got 10 rooms available. It's first come, first serve. And what you do is you send an email to joe at midfaithcrisis.org 
and then basically you've got a you've got a PayPal me a deposit of fifty pounds, and uh, we'll take things from there. So those bird watchers amongst us who would like to come away and watch bearded tits and many other things together, you then... just wanted to say that didn't I you? did, I did. Yeah. Then you can do that. The breakfast is spectacular. There, I seem to recall you the... having. Two of it last time we Well, were the thing is, the they do this thing where they have the full cooked breakfast or you mm. can have like haddock and, you mm. know, with poached eggs in or you can have... A, I hate that little word, or. So it turns <laughs> out... That, it turns out that you, you can ask... hands. Yeah, exactly. It turns yeah. out that you can, in fact, have everything ground onto one plate, which is beautiful. Splendid. Anyway, it's, it's, it is glorious food there. Very good. Okay. So there we are. It is quite expensive. I'm aware of that. Um, but there you are. Um, it's it's the only really good accommodation nearby. Shall we move on? Hey, I sent my manuscript off to the publishers. Did yeah. you really? Yeah. So does that feel absolutely fantastic? I imagine it does. <laughs> no. No, it just feels terrifying and horrible. <laughs> and it's all it means. What? All it means is you've moved on to the next stage of despair and dreadful <laughs> terror. Well, well, that's lovely to mark that historic moment in, in such a way. Oh, I'm sure it'll be all right in the end. It will be all right in the end. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's nice to get to this stage. It's good. Okay. Right. Good. Well, uh, feedback. We don't have time for much feedback actually because we have a cracking interview today. A really, really good interview. No, and we've had quite a lot of feedback. So thank you everyone yes. that wrote in following the um, personality disorder. I mean, the personality and spirituality. <laughs> your, thank you for writing in and uh, following your personality disorder. Uh, <laughs> yes, so that's helpful. Will, that is. Um, we will give more of the feedback. Although I, I'll just. Can I do a couple? Are we allowed yes, to do Yes, 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 do, 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 okay. do, do a couple. Okay, great. So from Bob, who says this. Um, says, uh, thank you for this podcast. Thank you for validating the introverts. I'm an introvert and have spent a lot of my life feeling inferior to my extrovert friends, colleagues, church, family, etc. All through school and youth group, I was told needs to speak up more. Friends hmm. would describe me as shy when introducing me. I hated that I was like that, but I couldn't change it. Introvert sounded like a curse to me. It also felt like your faith was measured on how much you went up the front, how high you waved your hands, how loudly and long you prayed for. Silence and solitude was not recognised as a form of worship. Uh, over the last few years, I've become more accepting of the fact that I am an introvert and I actually do have some interesting things to say. I've also realised that I'm not shy and have no problem meeting new people. I have no issues speaking up about those things I'm passionate about. I love being alone with nature and find God in those times. I've also met some amazing introverts and we have a secret society that all extroverts are excluded from. I have realised that's great. I have realised that both are needed in life and that neither is wrong. I still find it infuriating that extroverts always listen to first, but I'm working out how to handle this and how to make myself heard. Thanks again. That's from Bob. Yeah, no, thank, thank you. you, Bob. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? That's really. I like well... the idea of an introvert secret society. I, yeah. I just wonder how they're going to arrange all the meetings because they're not <laughs> going to phone each other, are they? No, exactly. <laughs> do, do it by hints. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Tom sent it. Uh, thanks, Tom, for sending in your blog post about spiritual disciplines for extroverts and introverts. In fact, it was so good, I put it on our facebook page yeah very good so uh do that is well worth checking out friends which is just a little reminder to uh go to our facebook page 
Okay, and so, well, we've had lots more emails, and uh, I think it's probably wisest if we pause there and we pick them up next week and we'll take yeah. feedback from the interview that is coming up. Yes, yes, of which I suspect will generate a lot of discussion and a lot of thoughts and a lot of stories. Do you want to set the scene for this? Yeah, yes, sure. Well, I, a couple of things. One, um, well, Bethany Solidera is the uh, is a scientific advisor to the mid-faith crisis. We established mm. that on in mm. previous um, episodes. But as you know, I'm a funeral celebrant and I guess I really want to talk about death. Death is something that I am handling, you know, all the time in my job professionally. Death is something I see many, many people really uh, struggling with. And so she wrote in with a particular comment and I just could not resist the opportunity of saying to her, um, any chance I could interview you. And mm. she, being the gracious, lovely lady that she is, said yes. Mm. Well, I think what's inter- one of the interesting things is, of course, she's in Oxford. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So She's... it was good of you to do the interview from Worthing. Yes. And save exactly. me having to go a few miles. Because you hate <laughs> people. <laughs> I actually had to Skype her. No. For, well, she yes. was in her shared office with Alistair McGrath. But I don't know that he was there while, oh, okay, while right. the interview. But you know, she shares an office with him. Oh, so okay. you know, among the heavyweights well, of the world. Thank you. Well, you're a better interviewer than I am because you're fundamentally more interested in people. <laughs> this is true. So I think it was worth it. Really. Thank you. Well, anyway. Anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a cracking interview. I so, tried not uh, to be intimidated by having such an unbelievably intelligent person on the podcast for a change. I know. I'm sorry about that. Try and raise your game a bit, would you? Anyway, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's listen to your interview with, with Bethany now. Well, friends, I'm delighted to say that I'm welcoming to the Mid-Faith Crisis podcast, Bethany Soloreda. Have I said that right? Yeah, Soloreda. Soloreda. You say it better. (laughs) (laughs) So hang on, let me finish the intro. Who is a postdoctoral fellow in science and religion from the University of Oxford. Is that good? Yeah, that's great. But more more importantly than that, you're the scientific advisor to the Mid-Faith Crisis. It's it's my main uh, main you know accolade in life. I hope that's on your business card. <laughs> it's on my CV. How about that? Before we get going, I want to say why, but but how did you find out about our humble little podcast? Well, yeah, I was told about it by my good friend Melody Ray Story, who listens okay. from Western Canada, and. Okay. Uh, so a big shout out to her and, and thanks for, for no, getting thanks. me into listening to this. No, yeah, thank you. That's terrific. Okay, well, you've written in a couple of times and I couldn't resist writing back and saying, please, can I interview you? Um, you've written lots of articles. I've read <laughs> one or two of them. Uh, they're fantastic. But but you're, obviously your, your realm is, as, as your title suggests, science and religion. Yeah. And, well, let's start off at the beginning. How how did you get into that? Uh, almost completely by accident, actually. Uh, my dad is a GP, and he came home from work one day with a business card from a local uh, university professor named Dennis Lamoureux, who happened to be the chair of science and religion at the University of Alberta. And uh, my dad just said he went to the same master's program as you're currently enrolled in that you're going to start. Would you like to meet with him? 
so I met with Dennis a couple times, and he was coming out with his book, Evolutionary Creation, and he had me read it prior to its publication. And what interested me was not the science per se, but how bringing science to the table helped us read the Bible better with new lenses. And so it was really the question of how to read the Bible that got me interested in this area rather than the science itself. Fantastic. And, and it seems to me that for all those in mid-faith crisis, this is one of the critical questions. I mean, we kind of feel like we have to park our brains at the door sometimes, especially some of us who've grown up in a more sort of fundamentalist tradition. Even, yeah. I mean, just last week, I was talking with someone who was insisting that when I made a comment about I don't know, singularities and the earth being 13.8 billion years older, they came to correct me just to say, no, it's actually only five to 6,000 years old. And and that's quite difficult for me now, going, going back and remembering and realising again that there are many in the church who hold dear to that. What's your journey been to having a more scientific understanding and how do you square that with the Bible? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and it's it's really the sort of question that I could talk about for hours. Okay. Um, but but in brief, uh, I never had a problem with evolution. Uh, that was never an issue in my family. Um, and when I when I started uh, to travel in more conservative circles, I always kind of thought it was an odd thing. I always assumed, you know, God created evolution happened. I don't know how they work together. Um, but when I started looking into it more carefully, what I found is that I don't think the biblical authors ever meant the Bible to be taken what we would call scientifically. Sure. Uh, they, they didn't have that category. And, and you can read back into the church fathers, into the reformers, people like John Calvin um, or, or Martin Luther, and they're able to read the Bible faithfully, but also without looking for a scientific literalism. Right. Uh, they, they had issues in their day, like realizing Saturn was bigger than the moon. So how come Saturn isn't mentioned in Genesis 1, <laughs> but the moon is described is as right? a light? Okay. Yeah. Great. And so, I mean, John Calvin just says, look, if you're looking for astronomy, you need to look elsewhere. This isn't, this isn't a book for... Uh, you know, trying to understand uh, complex scientific questions. It, he didn't use that word, scientific questions, but he said this is a Bible meant to be read and understood by everyone, and therefore it can't be a treatise for the learned, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look, I want to get us into this through responding to one of the sort of perennial questions that come into us, but also races around my head all the time. And it's basically about death and it's about dying. And because that is a major factor in a mid-life crisis, mm -hmm. but I think it also plays a part in the mid-faith crisis as well. And Lord knows we live in a death-denying culture. Um, you know, I come across people almost every day of my life who are so shocked by death and just don't have the vocabulary to deal with it. And uh, of course, the church teaches all kinds of things about death, some of it helpful, some of it not so helpful, especially if you think you're going to face an angry God. But how do you think about death? Because it was something you said in the last email 
about it. It's always been knitted into the fabric of the universe that really struck me. So I'd love you to speak to that for a bit and how we might have an understanding of death and dying that is a little bit more helpful. Yeah. I mean, from a biological point of view, we death is a very, very good part of life. It's, it's intrinsic. It's necessary to life. So yeah. every single day, my cells in my body are dying under sort of a controlled process called apoptosis. And if they aren't, then I have cancer, mm. right? So, so cancer is sort of a form of cellular immortality. And uh, if we as humans didn't experience any death, then life itself would become a, a curse. It would become mm. a problem. Um, okay, that's good. Having, having said that, having said biologically, death is a good and natural part of life, our experience of death is mired in sin. Mm. Yeah. We die for reasons that we shouldn't die, <laughs> you know, because okay, of so. war, because of yeah. abuse, because of uh, substance abuse. Um so the, the, the conditions of our death are, are marred, and our own experience of death is marred. At the same time, that's being wedded into, as you said, a death-denying culture, yes. where we don't think about death, we don't talk about death, we don't acknowledge death. Um, and so we have no idea what to do with it. We don't grieve it anymore. You go to funerals and you're told to wear bright colors and celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. Before you've even had a chance to to acknowledge that there is this now terrible loss in your life. Yeah. Um, so I think death was always part of God's good creation. I don't think death is a part of the fall. Um, you certainly have people like oh. Augustine saying, yeah. of course, animals ate one another, you know. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, I mean, I, I, sorry, I was just going to say in, in your <laughs> article, The Purpose of Dinosaurs, I mean, it really struck me. You said about 99% of all species that have ever lived are now extinct. And it's, you know, death's always been part of the deal. So why is it, why is it so sacrosanct? Why can't we talk about it? It's, it's odd. I think that there are various reasons we, we don't feel like we can talk about it. One, it's largely unknown. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't encounter it. So people, People don't die in homes anymore. They die away in, in hospitals and hospices. It's not something we encounter. But even, even non-human death is something we don't encounter really anymore. So, I mean, when I went to China, I remember being shocked because if you ordered something off the menu, they would often bring you the live animal before, <laughs> you know, so you could inspect, you know, the chicken or the fish. And when they served the chicken, they served oh it with its head oh and its gosh. feet on it. And one of one of my teammates at one point said, like, I can't eat something that's looking at yeah, me. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> really the was to turn the chicken's head around, so it was looking the other way. But... Um, but but to just sort of have that sense that meat came from a living being and something mm. had to die for you to eat it is not a connection we generally make. And when people do make it, they're often really surprised by it. What, what seems obvious, they're, they're emotionally surprised by it. And so part of it is, is just encountering death as it surrounds us every day and thinking again about it. In, in light of that, would, 
again, I want to say there are bad circumstances to death. There are deaths that are deeply tragic, mm. um, but there can also be good deaths. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that because you know we just have had another terrible tsunami in um, in Indonesia. Yeah. And, and so there are those, again, wringing their hands and saying, there you are, there's proof again, there's no God. What a terrible, evil world of suffering and death, and how can you believe in, in God? How, how do you ever get those questions, and how do you answer them? How do you respond to those as a scientist? Yeah, I, I do get those questions. And I mean, the, the first thing to do is to, to acknowledge the tragedy to acknowledge the pain and the suffering that happens. Um, as a scientist, I mean, I'm not a scientist myself, I'm, I'm a theologian, but when I talk to scientists, they sort of say the same thing that I said about cellular death and, and death in the body, that we need a world with earthquakes if we're going to have a world that can sustain life. Uh, tectonic plates, um, they do all sorts of things from generating the magnetic field that protects us from uh, cosmic rays from the sun that would otherwise kill us uh, to renewing nutrients in the soil to uh, stabilizing the earth temperature. If we didn't have the occasional earthquake, we wouldn't have any life at all on earth. So that's sort of a way scale, but it doesn't deal with our experience of the horrendousness of yeah. what's happened to these people. And so it's, you, you want to both say these things um, are these very same mechanisms that cause death are, are the, the mechanisms mm -hmm. that allow life to happen in the first place and to thrive and to survive. Uh, it's a package deal. Yeah. So, so let's take another hypothetical question. Let's just say I'm a man uh, in midlife and I'm having a crisis. Now, I know this is purely hypothetical. Purely hypothetical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and no one I'm married to could imagine that. <laughs> and let's just say I am just having this moment of existential, oh my goodness, I'm here, I've done so little with my life, it's passing by, I'm not going to do... How would you, how might you go about encouraging me to get comfortable with the fact that in 30 or 40 years time, I am going to pop my clogs? I, I mean, I, <laughs> There's would, a question. I would, yeah. <laughs> and you've got two minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Great. I mean, the, first, the first thing is, is to, to commit to that experience. Hmm. Don't, don't run for it, from it. Don't uh, binge Netflix until you forget the bad feelings. Okay, so feel it. You know, feel it. Um, but then realize that the the sense that you have that I have thirty more years is is ultimately an illusion. Uh, <laughs> it really that's, is. That's, <laughs> I might die tomorrow. I might die yeah. this evening biking home. I don't know. Mm. And so there's yeah. a sense of of recognizing that that death is is never far away, uh, but that's a hopeful thing. You know, there's this whole tradition of remember you will die, memento mori, and, and let that be what uh, shapes how you act today. Yeah. Not, not procrastinating, not putting off meaning in your life to some future point where everything will be perfect, because that will never come. 
X. Make make the difference you want to see now. Start today. Okay, I want to stop and make notes. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yeah, well, that's so true. And don't so many of the mystic teachers say that, because it seems to me another word or another way of describing what you're saying is, never mind that, live in the present now yeah. how you want to live. Yeah, and and when you do that, death death can become a friend. You know, that's what, what Francis of Assisi says, you know, um, both that it's it's a reminder of how to live well. It helps you prioritize how you're going to live. But then after a well-lived life, it becomes something where it's the thing that ushers you into God's presence rather than something that cuts short. Well, yeah. yeah. If that makes sense. So, so the knowledge of this oncoming tragedy should usher you into the presence of god yeah um and and in that yeah. sense it it's it's a loss but it need not be a tragedy so when we see the 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 saints in the christian tradition dying they don't go towards their death in despair they go mm. towards it in hope yeah. um Although that doesn't diminish the grief, the appropriate grief of those who, who lose that person. Sure, but there is a sense that they're dying well. Yeah, mm. and, and we can die well. That can yeah. happen. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Okay, All right, well, we've talked about death and probably that <laughs> will be enough for Nick. Um, what are you working on at the moment? What's exciting you? Um, Bearing in mind there's at least 22, 23 people listening to this podcast. How, what would you like to say to them? Anything? Well, now you've intimidated me. I mean, yeah, 22, sorry. 23 people. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's only okay. five. Oh, okay, good, good. Um, <laughs> I, I think what's really exciting, uh, what I'm working on is a, a project I've called Compassionate Theodicy, which is, which is a way of... Theodicy is that branch of theology that deals with the questions of good and evil in the yeah. world. How is God good and powerful and loving in light of in light of what we see? Mm. Now, the way that that's usually done today is it's a game played by professional philosophers in long right. books that are very difficult yes. to read, and therefore nobody reads them. Yeah. Uh, nobody in their right mind would hand it to somebody who is going through a hard time. Of course, yeah. What I want to see happen is for that to be reversed. I want to see this branch of theology become something that is useful to people who are suffering, who, that, so that it does give options to people who don't know what to think in ways that are approachable, understandable, but also that don't say, oh, I have all the answers. Mm. Mm. Uh, because we don't have all the answers. We have various approaches that, that might be a useful way to think oh. about how and why people are suffering. That'd be great. And are you writing? Yes, I, I, am, I am writing slowly, or and, uh, <laughs> I'd like to say, but surely. I'm, I'm not sure that it's surely. I, I just know that it's slowly. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing what I hope will become a, a resource book well, in that area. I assure you, I could use that book most days of my life. So that would be fantastic. Something that could really be helpful for people who are suffering and in pain and dealing with grief or dealing with their own death would be absolutely yeah. wonderful. 
they keep that going. Okay, I've got to finish with one last question. And this right. is a bit of a hobby horse. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine in Britain in 2018 that there are still churches that would say, you know, well, you're a woman, so you can't lead or you can't yeah. teach or they have a senior minister position. But, you know, we're going to close that off to 50 percent of the population. How, how have you found being a woman in the world you are? What have you come up against in the church? What are your views on women in ministry? Well, I I'm very much in support of women in ministry. Uh, I'm I'm in the discernment for ordination in the Church of oh, England really? right now. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, coming along. We'll we'll see how it ends. Great. But uh, I've been in leadership in the church many times. Having having said that, having said I'm absolutely pro women in ministry. I want to also, to some extent, uh, defend people who are not not the people who just aren't comfortable with it. But I think that there can be valid, theologically rooted reasons for people who hold that position that women shouldn't uh, be priests or or shouldn't um, be in in positions of leadership that are not simply misogynistic. Okay. So uh, one of the things that, that, that I find very frustrating is when people who hold my position simply dismiss the other side as they're misogynistic, they just yeah. don't get it. And they haven't some, done the work. Yeah. Some of the time that's true, but there are reasonable, valid positions held theologically that, that I think are reasonable. When I, when I run into those people, I have all the time in the world for them. Um, mm. But I'm not going to, at this point, attend a church that's like that. I'll say, you know what, live, live out your theology the best you can, and I'll do the same over here. Let's yeah. work for the kingdom together. Oh, that is such a great attitude. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to be on the podcast. You have been listening to Bethany Soloretta. Solaretter, yeah. Did I say that right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Thanks so much, and no bless problem. you, and all the best with all that work you're doing, especially the writing. Thank you. Whoa, whoa, what a wonderful human being. That was a, another, you are really, seriously, a very, very good interviewer, and there was a cracking interview, and really good. I was really impressed with the, uh, you know, the way she answered everything so cogently and so clearly, mm. and and um, even the even the the trick question at the end. <laughs> I know. She. What are you she, on? I know. She totally called me out on that. I could tell you. Here's the background. The background is recently I've been getting a you know a little bee in my bonnet about the women in leadership issue again, and I thought, oh, this would be a nice. We, I can throw in this question, then we can have a good old rant again mm. together. It'd be a bonding experience, and of course. Instead of joining in with my rant, she responded with grace and kindness. And actually, I respect people who have a theologically different position from me, but I don't have to work with them. And I can, you know, she just answered that question so brilliantly. There I was kind of spoiling for a fight. And uh, I, I, yeah, it was just very, very helpful and gracious. And it held up a little mirror to my soul on how unchristlike I can be sometimes. Mm, well, you I know, I, I just want to rant and moan and... And actually, it's the, it is that Marty Buber thing 
Little Marty. Little Marty. His, hey, Marty Boober's Christmas album should be out it soon. Should be I out thought. soon. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's that anyway. eyes out thing. You know, it's yeah. like, you, you know, any time we treat people who don't think the way we do, they're not as enlightened or as progressive as we are. They're in the wrong camp. You know, they think this. Mm. They Oh, they still think that. Any time you're looking down on people, you're treating them as it. It's not yeah. I thou, it's I it. And, uh, you know, get just a, a gracious reminder of that is really not the Jesus way of doing it. And, uh, yeah, so there we are. I was called out on that one, and I'm grateful. Yeah. What I liked about it was there's such sort of depth in there, but it's expressed so sort of coherently. And I, I never knew earthquakes were necessary. Yeah, that was an interesting it's tectonic I, plates well, or something. I know, yeah, I guess I guess volcanoes are necessary, so earthquakes must be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, amazing. It's this beautiful living organism, the Earth. You can't help feeling sometimes. But she did say some extraordinary things that I think we need to pick up on. So, I mean, I, I, there's a couple of phrases I wrote. One, yeah. the mechanisms which cause death are the mechanisms which allow life to thrive and survive. Yeah, how about I, that? I just think that's, that's a that's more kind of I'm trying to get my head around that whole thing yeah. that you know if you're not if part if your cells are not dying off and regenerating then there's something wrong with you. Yeah, there's some, there's an illness there, and we don't think of death that positively at all. We don't no. think of it as part of life. We think of it as an ending to life. Exactly. Uh, but there's something challenging about the thought that what if death isn't a part of the fall? What if death has always been very much a part of the deal and I, and I wrote down this quote that, that death can become a friend it's a reminder of how to live well it helps mm. you prioritize and after a well-lived life it's something that ushers you into god's presence i'm going to stick that up you know in front of me yeah i read that yes. every day for a little while i think yes <laughs> yeah absolutely i think it's great that um the idea of death as a friend i mean i I've got a few questions I want to ask you in a minute about it, but one, yeah. of, the, one of the things about death is we can't solve it. No. You know, it's one of the, the things in yeah. life now that we cannot fix. Human beings cannot fix it. It's bad news for control freaks. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that's why we don't want... We're so scared of it, we don't want to talk about it, because actually we live in a culture that, that thinks it can fix anything, yeah. and we are confronted with the fact that this is unfixable. Yeah. You can't... You, you can't um, mend this and therefore it's a mystery. It's a, it, you know, we just shunt it away. It, it faces us with the limits of our power, I think. Yeah, well, I think, I think you're opening up why it's become a sort of slightly taboo subject and we don't talk about it. I mean, I thought it was fascinating when she was talking about, you know, we, we had a little conversation about the death-denying culture yes. and how immunised we've got from it. Even our food, we don't really appreciate the meat that we eat. No, that's living. right. Yeah, that I, I think w- possibly yeah. we should, you know, if you eat meat, you should probably... Kill it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, my daughter the other night went to a, went to a butchery class <laughs> how, to cut up a, how to cut up a lamb. I, I think mean, it was dead already, to be fa- fair. Facetious as that sounds, you do think that maybe at some point in our lives actually probably would be healthy for us. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, what do you think? You think all meat comes in small sort of trays, foil-wrapped or something? Yeah, exactly. No, I think the the fact that it can't be fixed means that we're uncomfortable with it because we're a fixing culture. A friend of mine uh, was talking about being a missionary out in Africa where uh, when people die, you just go and sit with them. You don't try and solve it. You can't say You don't even say anything. You just sit. 
with them while they grieve. That's very powerful. That's and I found it really challenging because I, I want to fix it. I want to fix how mm. people are feeling. I yeah, want, to, you want to be you know, happy. Yeah. I want them to I want everything to be right again and mm. I'm viewing it the wrong way really because yeah. in a sense it's not wrong anyway. I mean it feels uh, Bethany was saying, you know, it's death is a loss but it it need not be a, a tragedy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um I... yeah, let me just ask you a few questions Joe because I, I you know this has been something that's obviously that's sort of on your mind. How, how that interview? How did it sort of sort of resonate with your kind of experience? Um, well, uh, very very much because one of the things I often say at the start of a service that I would do is that sometimes I think grieving people do see things clearer than the rest of us. And what I mean by that is I think that what tends to happen in life is most of us are trying to do too much and we fill our lives with stuff, and then what what happens is you you take a whole load of things for granted all the people who love you all that mm. really matters the, the the people who care about you that all that stuff you know on the one hand you take stuff for granted and on the other hand you fret about things that you know just really don't matter in the big eternal scale of things you just we just fret you know we fret about brexit oh, we fret yeah. about things we can't control we fret. but then what happens is someone you love dies and all of it stops for a little while. I, I don't, you know, how, how long does it last? I don't know. But the grief process opens you up and then everyone gets to see, oh, my goodness, this is what really matters. This person mm. loved me. They cared for me. I loved them. I cared for them. Why didn't I spend more time telling them how much I loved mm. them and cared for mm. them? Why didn't, why didn't we value that more? But it's too late. Mm. So I think, I think what resonated with me was that, you know, passage I've, quoted earlier that actually in a way it's a reminder of how to live well and it helps you prioritize so that resonated with me the fact that it can still be ghastly I mean I've just literally just come from a friend's funeral a chap called Andy Williams who lived down there just a wonderful guy he just he's actually he's quite a quiet guy but the place was packed I mean he was only 58 I think he was so you know way way Mm. way too young but you know just he just did life so well and 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 it was a good example of an occasion that is terribly tragic but also mixed with joy and hope he had a very strong faith he was always very convinced of what happened after he died and he he got his priorities right in Mm. life and somehow he sad and desperate as everyone felt there was this uh amazing hope Mm. um coming through it all so yeah it's um, what about though now i mean that's a very um obviously that's a faith-filled service yeah it was yeah service yeah it was yeah very much so. and that would expect to have at least something of a, a different perspective there but you now don't really operate in those areas no, do no. you not only no, because no, of your of... banishment what for the... heretical yes. reasons but because <laughs> you know that's what your your your, your service is offered to people who yeah. Who don't go near a church? Perhaps yeah. who don't want to go near people a church. People who specifically request a non-religious service. Yeah. And so I wonder what your view of um, death as, and bereavement has changed. Uh, whether it's changed now that you operate outside a church um, sort of uh, I, situation, I th- really. I think it has morphed a little bit. I mean, back to our conversation about the evangelical universalist. I mean, I I suppose I don't 
I don't think that how it works is they now go and face judgment and some people go to hell and other people go to heaven and God's mm. God's doing that, you know, seeing if you're on the list and all that sort of thing or mm. the lamb is or whoever's in charge of the book of life. Uh, I mean, I've it is a, a lamb. Hazy. I think it is a lamb. Yes. Yeah. So yes. the lamb is going through checking people off on arrival. Um, it's a literate lamb. It is. <laughs> I don't... I don't really go with that. So, and I take enormous comfort in the scientific narrative. I mean, if we have all come, as I think we said before, if we have all come from a singularity in the first place, if you know, if this, if the whole universe started with a speck, and it's still expanding, and perhaps who knows, one day it will go back to being a speck. Then we are all somehow related, united together. And so I think the fact that, you know, when I go into the box and I'm cremated and that my turn to ash and that my atoms will become feed for birds and trees and animals and my atoms go on and form new things and in a few billion years time they will form a star again. I find that enormously actually comforting mm. in a way that I never used to when I was in church-based ministry. So, mm. so even without the faith narrative, which is really important to me. There's a scientific narrative that tells me life goes on. It just never stops. Mm. It's just the whole universe is going somewhere. We're part of a story that's going, that's ongoing. And our, you know, our actual atoms and subatomic particles are part of that story and they mm. carry on. Mm. So it's no bother for me in a non-religious service to say, well, of course they're carrying on. They're carrying on in our memories and in our hearts and in our lives and they're actually physically carrying on. Mm. I think a lot of people sense that as well. They, they, uh, you know, yeah. they want it, but they, they sense it as well. So they often use that kind of language, even though they're yeah. not. And know, the strange, often... and of course, as we said many times before, most people who say non-religious mean we don't want to talk about this, you know, Santa Claus in the sky figure yeah. who could have cured them of cancer but didn't. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm not believing in the same God they're not believing in. Yeah. Or yeah. I'm not believing in that same God. So, yeah. you know, it's... It, and when you talk about this ongoing story of the universe in quite scientific, it's it's incredible how often it really opens people up spiritually because they go, mm, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it does. Because because they feel part of something or because they because it, because it starts to explain why you feel a sense of connection when you look ah, at a sunset okay. or a newborn baby or the moon or nature or you feel connected with people in grief. It's because we are all connected. And I tell right. them that. Of course we are. Yeah. yeah. How do you sit, though, with... I mean, so you meet people who are grieving. Yeah. I, I wonder... I always feel... I mean, I'm so flip, flipping English. You know, I get very... Mm. I don't know the right things to say. I always feel I'm going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. I wonder if you can help us with that. With How do we sit better with people who are grieving well i i think you know god gave us two buttocks and one mouth so <laughs> they're, they're both the same <laughs> thing for me <laughs> where do you think i speak from men for heaven's sake <laughs> exactly i mean you mentioned the story of your missionary friend and that's mm. that's very powerful i mean i remember when you know back in the day when when the church would have me and um 
and I would do pastoral ministry. And all I would do is sit and listen. I mean, I would mm. not say, no one would get a word of wisdom from my mouth. All I did was sit and listen. Well, at the end of it. Surprising. Yeah, well, exactly. Just as well there was no Turn a weakness into a strength, I think. <laughs> exactly. Thing, well, I did turn it into a strength. I never said a word. All he did yeah. was listen. And then, they call, of course, at the end they say, oh. That was so wonderful. Oh, that's yes, so helpful. Yes. Thank you for all yes. your... Thank you for that. I didn't say a word. Yeah. But it, it, there is such power in not judging people and just being with people. That, mm. There's the connection. In fact, I sometimes think words just get in the way of that. Mm. We're human beings and we're connected. And actually in silence, we sense that connection. And, and in listening to people. Um, we really honour them, I think. So, you know, so all that time spent on the pastoral modules in college was a complete waste of time. Just need to listen. <laughs> Just need to listen to people. <laughs> waste of time well, you, and money. <laughs> you weren't listening anyway, so you know. It's, I was on the snooker table. <laughs> that's worked out all right. It has. You were. <laughs> um, but the more I've been thinking about this topic, I'm thinking about you. You, mm. you're great. You know, bold idiot yes. uh, how i just wanted to say you know all joking aside what you do i think is is remarkably valuable thank you you know it's, surprisingly so it's yes it's incredible anyway um i think we should wrap up really um I'm sure there's lots for people to think about out of this uh, podcast. If you uh, like the podcast, please recommend it to a friend. Please send yeah. us your uh, feedback um, and emails. Well, send them to Joe, obviously. Yeah, uh, Joe at midfaithcrisis.org. And if you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today... <laughs> <laughs> go, go to the pub. <laughs> go to the pub and then send me an email. Yeah, no, uh, great. We'd, we'd love to hear your stories and uh, your comments. Um, thank you for listening. We really and, appreciate and it. And big thanks to Bethany, most Yes, of all, indeed. Thank you very much. And we'll, I think we'll get her back on because that was real content and had actual sort of intelligence behind it. So I felt quite threatened, really. Mm, me too. Thanks ever so much for listening. Really appreciate it. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye.